Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, this is what God's word says. Someone in the crowd said to him, Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, help us now by your spirit as we have opened to your word that you would open our eyes to behold the wonders of your law, the glory that is in your word. Help us to behold and see and taste the true and lasting treasure that is Jesus Christ alone. We ask this for his glory and in his name. Amen. Last week, we were in the previous passage of verses 4 to 12 in Luke chapter 12, in which Jesus touched upon the issue of fearing man versus fearing God. And he really drove home this point by bringing us to the vantage point of that last day when we will stand before the Son of Man, surrounded by the throng of angelic hosts, verse 8, and we will receive on that day either his commendation or his condemnation. will either be acknowledged by him or be denied by him unto eternity. And all of this was to show how silly it is to fear man, to live for people's approval and to seek to please everybody at the cost of pleasing God because it's all so temporary and short-lived. And when it's all said and done, all that's going to matter is God's approval, whether or not we are right with Him, whether or not we are known by Him, and whether or not we belong to Him by faith. That is eternal and permanent. Well, as Jesus was speaking these words to his disciples in the hearing of the crowds, the, these, these words of eternal weight and glory, verse 13 interjects with the voice of one individual who was there in that crowd on that day who suddenly piped up and had a question for Jesus. Now we might expect that this question would have some relevance to all that Jesus was talking about. Perhaps the man could have asked, Teacher, What will it be like on that day? Teacher, how can I be assured that I will be acknowledged and not denied and be faithful to the end? Teacher, will you tell us more about what awaits us in eternity if we are indeed received and welcomed by you? What's in store for us on the other side of that bridge between this world and the next? 
these would be some pertinent and urgent questions to ask, we would think. But it turns out for this man, everything that Jesus had been saying had gone into one ear and out the other. Because in that moment, here was this man's deepest concern and his most urgent request in verse 13. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Apparently, he had a brother and their parents had passed and left their estate. And there was a dispute among the two sons as to who would get what and how much. Now, that's no trivial matter. But here was someone. The issue was that his heart and his attention and his interest was captivated by his financial and materialistic ambitions. So much so that despite being in the presence of God incarnate, who was admonishing souls to think in light of eternity, all this man could think of was his earthly possessions and goods. And so Jesus responds to his question in verse 14, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now the you there is plural. He's not just talking to that guy, but he's saying between you and your brother, what do I have to do with this? Well, what do I have to do with your family business? Now, it's not because Jesus doesn't care about our family affairs or financial welfare or anything like that. No, of course he cares. He cares about that and more. He cares about everything. He just said earlier in verse 6, aren't five sparrows told, uh, sold for two pennies? But not a single one of these worthless sparrows is forgotten by God. And if that's how much God cares about worthless sparrows, then how much more do you think God cares about you who are of exceedingly more value than many sparrows? In fact, God cares for you so intimately, so personally, so specifically, that even the hairs of your head are numbered. Well, if that's the case, why does Jesus react in this way to this man's request? Because Jesus is saying, Mr. Mr. Man, why are you coming to me to judge your family disputes? Couldn't you have just gone to a financial advisor or a trust and estates lawyer? Is that all you seek from me? Is that all I am to you? Is this really the most important judgment that is on your mind in light of everything I've been talking about? Have you been listening to anything I've been saying about that final judgment day. You see, Jesus was exposing the man's heart that was so spiritually dead and blind and deaf to the eternal realities of heaven and hell because he was in love with this world. And he was dominated by his materialistic desires. Because this is what life was about for this man. Life was about stuff. Money. Wealth, net worth, investment accounts, vacations, cars, toys, house, whatever, you name it. The whole American dream, the full gamut. That's what he lived for. He set his heart upon these things and relied on them to provide fulfillment and meaning and lasting pleasure. And my friends, that is a tragedy because that is a pitiful waste of a life because life is so much more than just about the temporal stuff which is all perishable in the end 
And so Jesus takes this opportunity of a man's spiritually senseless question as a teaching moment, turning to the rest of the crowds by t- in verse 15 and saying, take care, be, be careful, be careful, and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I mean, do you hear the appeal, the loving appeal in his voice? Jesus is saying, don't do it. Don't waste your life on living for the things of earth. Life is so much more than just about possessions and wealth and whatever shiny thing that entices your flesh. And the irony is, no matter how much stuff you have, no matter how much you've got amassed for yourself, you know it, I know it, everyone knows it, it will never be enough. And the lie that everyone believes and the lie that everyone tells themselves is that just this one more thing and it will be enough. But we all know it is never enough because those earthly things were never meant to satisfy your soul. Because God has put eternity into man's heart. We were made to be satisfied by that which is truly permanent and everlasting and glorious. But everything on earth is fleeting and passing away. Hence, Jesus calls it what it is to be on your guard against all covetousness. Greed is what it is. Never having enough. Always needing more. The love of money and possessions It's a hunger which cannot be satiated. It is a thirst which cannot be quenched. And it is but an illusion of permanent happiness which can never be realized. And so to live your life in pursuit of the things of the world to satisfy you, it's it's a life tragically squandered. It is the life of a fool. That souls made for eternity would put all their eggs in the bottomless basket of this temporal world. Now folks... We are in greater danger as residents of Tri-Valley. We are in greater danger of this than practically any other people in any other part of the world. And I am convinced that almost every believer in the Tri-Valley, every believer must run the race of faith through a swamp. It's hard enough as is, but it's doubly hard for us. Because this swamp that drags us down to the dirt to this world is a swamp of affluence and abundance. And many are entangled by the snare of the love of money and worldly ambitions. And many who initially profess to believe, they are eventually swept away, dragged down, and the seed of the gospel is choked by the cares of this world and the riches as Jesus said in the parable of the sower. Isn't this why he said that it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? You know, we have to understand, and we have to be honest with ourselves, that as believers who have much, and that is a blessing to be sure, don't get me wrong, but the sinfulness of our hearts makes it such That as believers who have much, who have been given much by God, we have to live the Christian life under severe spiritual 
handicap. It is hard enough as is, but we must be especially on guard to take care lest we be swept away by the swamp of covetousness. It is easiest for us, more than others, in other parts of the world, to waste our lives on the things that don't matter. It is a life of foolishness. And to illustrate this point and to help sober us up and wake us up, Jesus gives this parable in verse 16, in which he says, A land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Now let's dissect the details of this parable and begin talking about what was not the issue. What was not the issue was, well, this rich man, he owned land uh, for which this particular year of harvest, he had an unexpected windfall of growth and production. He, He hit the agricultural jackpot, if you will. But look, nowhere does it say... Nowhere does it suggest that this windfall was dishonest gain. He wasn't extorting people. He wasn't manipulating the markets or doing anything of that sort. He had nothing to do with this plentiful production. In fact, by all accounts, it would suggest that God was the one who blessed him with this windfall. Because the man had no control over the weather, the rain, the atmospheric conditions that made such a prolific harvest Possible. And so presumably, this wealth was gained honestly, without corruption or breach of ethics, and given by the fact that God was the one who granted such a thing, it would tell us that the gain of wealth and enormous revenue in and of itself was not evil. Look, biblically, a biblically balanced view of money is that money is not inherently wrong. Money is neither moral nor immoral. It's just money. Money is amoral. There's no morality attached to it intrinsically. It's just a vehicle to represent capital or some value. That's it. But what is moral or immoral is the heart of man that is so easily tempted to use this vehicle to glorify self instead of God. And here, when we look at how this man in the parable is portrayed, we we can observe various glimpses of that secret inner heart which God sees. We see here that he is a self-centered man. Look at how many times in this parable you see the words I and my. I mean, it's all about me, myself, and I. I'll do this, I'll do that, all for me and my goods. All all this wealth has made him self-sufficient, self-impressed, and self-serving to the point where his thoughts are revealed as an inner dialogue with himself. He loves to talk to himself. He thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to to, to store my my crops. And talk about first world problems. And notice also how in his selfishness, his chief concern is how to hoard more wealth for himself. Rather than having the instinct of generosity and kingdom-minded stewardship with the blessing that God gave him. If he had any spiritual bone in his body, 
he would have paused to wonder, Lord, I was already a rich man. See, it doesn't say that a poor man suddenly became rich, but he was already a rich man. He already had enough. But he would have paused to wonder, Lord, I'm a, you've already given me so much. Why did you give me so much more? I don't even need this. Why did you give me so generous a harvest? This is more than I need, more than I can handle for myself, more than I can store. Did you want me to use it for something that you had in mind? Would you please show me what that is? How do you want me to use it and invest it for the purpose of your glory? How can I steward it most wisely for the sake of your kingdom? But there is no such thought. Instead, he invested only in himself for his own gratification and pleasure. He invested not in the work of God's kingdom, not in the eternal things, not in serving God's people, but he set his heart to build more conduits that funneled everything back to himself. And to cap it all off is this mindset that was so enslaved to this world and this world only that he told himself, soul, you have got it all now. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, is it a sin to rest, to enjoy good food and drink, to experience happiness and the blessings of earth? Of course not. 1 Timothy 4.3 says that food, marriage, all the joys of life, they are all given by God to be received with thanksgiving and praise to Him. But the problem here was this man's attitude and his outlook, where he believed that he had arrived upon paradise on earth. He was already in heaven. His constructed heaven. Telling himself, you have enough for many years. Don't don't think about what's after this. You have years of enjoyment of life on earth ahead of you. Hence this phraseology, eat, drink, and be merry. It's it's not condemning eating and drinking and being happy. No, it's, it's the attitude of this one life is it. There's nothing after it. You have only one life. You only live once. Y-O-L-O. YOLO. My old license plate, it inadvertently said YOLO on it because the middle three uh, alphabetic characters were Y-O-L and then the next number happened to be zero. And everyone thought I was some millennial just driving around preaching YOLO and I had nothing to do with it. I was misunderstood. But YOLO, that's the message of the times, the spirit of the age. You only live once. Live for yourself. Gratify your flesh. It's like in the days of Noah. They were eating and drinking and being merry, and they did not heed the preaching of Noah and the judgment to come. They mocked him, and they refused to think of what would happen next suddenly. That's the problem here. And for so many, where we live here, in this affluent part of the world, We have everything. And thank God for it. But how easy it is, because we have everything, even as those who profess Christ, to live as if heaven is not real. Because our neatly constructed lives on earth is so wonderful as is, we don't want to leave it. Heaven doesn't seem very attractive for us. Because earth is so attractive already. And so how easy it is for us to live like eternity is but a myth. Practically speaking, no matter how much 
philosophically and theologically we talk about it and have learned to use the Christian jargon of, oh, you're the eternal hub, oh, eternal life, thank God for that. And I, I wonder if God, if God were to transcribe the secret thoughts of our hearts, put it on paper and pass it out for everyone to read, I wonder, would our inner dialogue on a given day-to-day basis sound similar? Dear self, just relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Save up as much as you can for that American dream, early retirement, sailing on a yacht forever. That sounds like prison to me. I don't know why anyone wants to do that. No offense, that's just my personal opinion. But just enjoy it so that you can waste away your years of life doing whatever you want to do, sitting on the beach, staring at the ocean, and deluding yourself that your life on earth will never end like the endless horizon that you see before you. Church, have you been allowing the world to train your mind rather than God's word training your mind? Now, is this parable suggesting that anytime we make money, we should never save it and immediately give it away? No, of course not. That would be naive and foolish in a different way. Proverbs 13.22, the book of wisdom, tells us a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Like, it's a commendable thing in God's eyes to be financially prudent and to save and provide for your family for even generations to come. Is it a sin to plan for retirement, to save up, and to plan to slow down your later years after having labored hard for decades? Absolutely not. Proverbs 21 verse 20 says, Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. The fool spends and spends and spends in his youth and doesn't think ahead. And when time comes to retire from the workforce, he realizes there's nothing to live off because he devoured it all in his early years. And many such people have to live in complete dependence on the government. But look, as as much as we cringe at the thought of a young man or woman living so recklessly and immaturely, isn't that exactly the wastefulness and foolishness of spending, by analogy, by extrapolation, of, of spending our life on earth on the things that don't really matter, And when time comes to retire from this life and step into eternity, God forbid that we would realize that we are spiritually bankrupt because we devoured our souls unto self-destruction during our years on earth. And so the question is the issue of our hearts. It's not about the, the money. It's not about disbanding the idea of financial prudence. But it's the issue of our hearts. What are we living for? You see, retirement is not wrong. I mean, it's, it's a necessity. Saving and planning for is not wrong. It's basic math. And praise God that for many of you who are retired, you have thought ahead with wisdom and prudence so that you don't have to bear the burden of the stress of working yourself to your last breath. And you can enjoy this, this slower pace of life in this new season of rest. That is a blessing from the Lord, to be sure. And praise God for that. But the question is, how you view retirement, how you live out your retirement, that is the hard question. What is the purpose of your retirement? Is it just 
to sit there and to eat and drink and be merry until the clock runs out and it's time to unfortunately leave this Disneyland of a world. I mean, if that's all there is to life, isn't that a really sad way to live? How meaningless. What a waste. It's no different than living like an animal in the life of a worthless pigeon. They're just up there, they just do the thing, they just poop on cars, and they just coo, and then they're gone. That's it. But isn't this the hope and joy of the Christian? That Jesus says, I have come, that you may have life and have it abundantly. Because this is eternal life, as he prays in his high priestly prayer to the Father, that they know you, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Life is about knowing God, walking with God, living for God, carrying out His will, being cared for by Him, growing in deeper wonder and awe of His love. This is the best way to use your retirement, to use your working days, to use your whole life stewarded to you by God, to know God better. To, to spend, especially in your retirement, to spend the ample time that you now have to read, to learn, to grow in faith and godliness, to seek to deepen your awe of God and His amazing grace as revealed in Christ, to spend each day growing in intimate knowledge of Him and to fall deeper in love with Him each day more than the last, to worship Him more fervently in your heart as the years go by. This is a life and a retirement lived for the glory of God. And this will prepare you for eternity. This will excite you for eternity. And this, strangely enough, is the only thing that will actually fill your years on earth with true purpose and meaning, fulfillment and direction. Because Christ is life. There is no life apart from Him. He is eternal life and joy and satisfaction. You see, life is more than just about stuff and things and belongings and experiences of this earth. It's more than just to live merely for food, drink, and fleeting entertainment. To do so is to foolishly waste it all, which is pointedly illustrated in the punchline of this parable. Remember this man in this parable, he had life all planned out according to his perfect little design of his utopia on earth. And by the way, this all begs the question, who is really the God of his life? This is called practical atheism. He may have said, I believe in God. He may have said, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. But he's living like an atheist. Living as if God doesn't exist. Because he's governing himself. He is solely the master of his faith and the captain of his soul. In any case, this man, his mind and his thoughts were captivated by the supreme ambition to stockpile all his earthly treasures, accumulate everything within the security of his barns and storehouses, and the more that he planned to build. But verse 20, God said to him, Fool, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. And all these things that you have prepared, whose are they going to be? Not yours. You did all this work. 
to hoard that wealth and ensure your security on on earth for, for years to come. And you just assume that you would live for that many years to enjoy it all to yourself. But did you stop to consider that perhaps this very night is God's appointed time of the end for you? And it's all over, your life on earth. And you will stand before Him and give an account of your life. But you spend all the time and money and energy and everything on building up the walls of your little earthly kingdom, which you can't take with you. And you did that at the cost of entering the kingdom of God, which is eternal and everlasting. And your earthly little kingdom that you built up, that you labored and toiled for, you have to hand over the keys to someone else. What a waste. You you wasted the life God entrusted to you. By the way, this word, that this night your soul is required of you, this word is actually a financial term, which suggests what was loaned to you is now being demanded back. You see, we need to think biblically that our lives are a stewardship from God. God has loaned life on earth to us, and He owns it. Why, why would you waste it? It's like, it's like if you took out a million dollar loan, especially at these interest rates, and you went to McDonald's and bought a million one dollar cheeseburgers from the dollar menu. Actually, I, think, I don't think they have dollar menus anymore because of inflation. But how silly and foolish is that? You can't eat... All those million cheeseburgers. You have to give it away. It'll perish. It's all a waste. But that's how it is to live this life all for yourself because you can't even enjoy it. You, you, you can't. You don't have the capacity to enjoy all the pleasures that the world promises you. What a fool's errand to live for these earthly ambitions Because you can't take them with you. Not a single penny, not an ounce of anything. You must leave it all behind. You know, I find that some of the saddest kinds of stories you hear are those not just of people who died earlier than we might have expected, maybe died in their 40s or so, but that such people who died at a relatively young age, they spent their years alive Working to the bone, grinding it day and night to make as much money as possible to attain that dream of being rich and comfortable and having everything. And so all those years of their life, they sacrificed time with their families, meaningful relationships, and they just worked and worked and worked and worked with the hopes and plans of retiring comfortably at... 50, let's say. So they can put life on cruise control and enjoy everything and never have to work a day in their lives and they can enjoy all the pleasures and luxuries that they could ever imagine. That was the plan. And things were going well. Just a few more years. And they hit that goal. But suddenly, at the age of 48, they find themselves in a car accident. And they not even their fault. 
Couldn't anticipate it, couldn't plan it. And it's all done. Life is over. And if you rewind the tape and look back at this person's life, and, and, and you look at, and you read through the chronicles of what the daily life of this individual consisted of, it's as though you're reading the biography of a life of a slave sold into forced labor for all the years of his life who never knew true freedom despite being promised it by all the magazines and advertisements of financial freedom. They lived like a slave. That is so sad. That is a precious life wasted in pursuit of the false promises of joy and happiness. And countless souls, day by day, are leaving this world with such wasted lives. And they will stand before the Son of Man. And no matter how many digits are in their savings account or investment accounts, no matter how many shares of big tech companies they owned, no matter what house or car or other assets belongs to them, they will stand spiritually bankrupt before God and they will regret their lives forever because verse 21 they laid up treasure for themselves and was not rich toward God how does one become rich toward God what does that mean it is by trusting and abiding and living in Jesus Christ alone. Second Corinthians 8, 9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, and in your poverty and bankruptcy, might become rich. See, as sinners, we're all bankrupt and infinitely in debt before God, a debt of sin that we cannot repay. But Christ, who is God the Son of infinite glory and riches and honor, He laid aside that glory by cloaking it, humbling Himself, and came in the likeness of frail man to pay that debt for us of our spiritual poverty by suffering the penalty of sin on behalf of those who trust in Him. And all who confess their sin and entrust their lives to Him, they can receive the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Christ earned for them, and they have an eternal inheritance waiting for them in heaven because in Christ we are adopted as God's rightful children and heirs. And what that means practically in our everyday present lives is that as children of God, we can live this new life Not the old life of being enslaved to the false promises of this world and chasing after the wind, chasing it off a cliff, but this new life of living for God's will, to live to do our Father's business for richer or for poorer. That doesn't even matter because we know we all in Christ have infinite riches stored up for us in heaven. And if God so chooses to entrust great wealth to you, that you as a child of God, 
that your heart would seek first his kingdom, to honor him with that wealth, as Proverbs 3, 9 says. See, this is what it means to be rich toward God. And praise be to God that he would lavish such riches of his blessing and love and grace towards sinners like us. These are the riches that do not perish. These are the riches that last forever. And friend, if you're here this morning, and the only life you know is the life of just living for this world, and the fun, and the stuff, and the retirement, and doing whatever else everyone is doing, and the same old story that always ends with the expiration date upon your death, please, please, for your sake, not for my sake, please for your sake, do not waste your life. It is far too precious. Your soul is far too valuable to spend it all on what amounts to nothing in the end. There is an eternity at hand. Do not spend your soul on the things that don't matter. Heed the instruction of King Solomon. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived 3,000 years ago in the 10th century BC. He was the third king of Israel, the son of King David. And Solomon had a wisdom to him granted by God, a wisdom that was unparalleled. That doesn't mean that he was sinless. Oh, Solomon was a sinner, as you'll see in his life. But ironically, some of the wisest words that King Solomon ever spoke was at the end of his life, having wasted it. As he writes in the book of Ecclesiastes, his inspired memoirs, if, it, if you will, in which he reflects on all his foolishness of having tragically wasted his life by chasing after empty pursuits, by searching all the world for lasting pleasure. He begins in his opening statement in the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all, his vani- all is vanity. Everything is meaningless. Boy, that's, that's exciting to read, isn't it? But he saying, that's what I've come to realize. The life on earth is meaningless. Why would he say that? Because he continues in the second chapter, well, I had everything. God gave me unprecedented wisdom. I had all the wealth. I had all the power, all the resources. The most powerful, the richest man on earth. He lacked nothing. And Solomon says, with all of that, I determined to embark on the greatest philosophical quest of the pursuit of happiness. Now, where did I go to search for such utopian hedonism? Well, first, I tried finding it in the legacy, in my legacy of the greatest achievements and accomplishments. I built houses, vineyards, parks, skyscrapers, as it were, all in my name. But that didn't make me happy, surprisingly, he says. I then added countless servants to my portfolio. I had butlers everywhere. I didn't have to lift a finger. Gold, silver, incalculable assets. I had private concerts from the greatest entertainers of the world. I practically built heaven on earth. Strangely enough, I was still empty. 
Well, then I thought maybe fulfillment comes from knowledge. And so I studied and studied. I learned to no end. I expanded the limits of my wisdom. Philosophy, history, science, astronomy, medicine, you name it, everything. But nothing. I had all the romance, all the sensual euphoria, indulging my carnal flesh with the most beautiful women on earth. All the food and and drink and knowledge and experience and everything. But after all of this, searching to no end for all these years, he said, I had unrestrained access to every imaginable pleasure on earth. But behold, he says in Ecclesiastes 2.11, behold, everything was vanity and a chasing after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Why? Because the gain that satisfies the soul is that which is over and above the sun and the heavenly treasures of being in the presence of God above our Creator and Redeemer knowing Him, living for Him, finding our all in Him. And Jesus Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. Friend, if you are without Christ this morning, do not live the life of a fool. Do not waste your life. Be wise unto salvation and receive by faith the infinite riches of God's grace and mercy in Christ. And church, may we be reminded to not live as though eternity is not real. No matter how much we profess it. To not just profess with our lips that Christ is our treasure all the while pursuing our our lives in, in seeking the treasures of the earth. And as that famous poem goes, only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. And I promise you, it will be so worth it when it's all said and done and when you stand before the Son of Man and you inherit the treasures you stored up in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy. Do not settle for the temporary things of this world. Do not be enticed by the temptations of this world. Make it your heart's ambition and prayer each day to live a life of eternal significance by God's help. And if that be your sincere desire and prayer, God will help you and teach you and protect you and sustain your faith to the end by the power and ministry of His Spirit. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, You are truly the greatest treasure of the universe because in Your presence, in You alone, is all splendor and majesty and beauty, and excellence, and glory. O Lord, we confess how easy it is for our eyes to be distracted away from that which we know in our minds and our hearts to be the truth. 
Oh Lord, forgive us for the ways in which our hearts wander away. But help us continually day by day to fasten our minds, to set our minds on the things that are above and to find our utmost and chief delight in knowing you. And Father, we thank you so much for the promise of the gospel, for the generosity and the grace and the mercy that you have shown to us in making sinners like us wallowing in our infinite death, broken, poor, destitute, bankrupt. You have given us the infinite riches of the righteousness of Christ because He has paid the debt for us. And we thank You that You have given us this most precious sacrament of the Lord's Supper to remind us of the love of Christ and even the weakness of our faith and to remind us of the riches that not only are awaiting us, but the riches that He has already secured for us by His death on the cross. Would you nourish us with these ordinary elements of the bread and the cup? Use them, set them apart to feed our souls, to strengthen our faith that is frail, that we might be built up in the most holy faith to live for you unto the end. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.